Welcome to a podcast called Intrepid. My name is Craig Forces. I am here with Philip Lacasse and Stephanie Carvin, high above the Rideau River. And this is our next segment in Her Majesty and Right of Pod. <laughs> Stephanie, what's on the agenda today? It is Charter Fest 2019. Woo! <laughs> I have, I need like a, like a, if it was legal to have, I would like light a flame in here. I think Carlton safety would probably get upset. No, and we'd probably have the automatic sprinkler destroy our equipment. Uh, the, the pedant here is going to say it should be Canada Act 1982 Fest, followed by Constitution Act 1982 Fest with the charter nested as part of a larger issue. Okay, and, and, new and rule. That's, <laughs> Phil's not allowed to make fests. <laughs> it's like a whole rule that we have now. But Phil's right, actually, right? So we oh. want to talk about the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. <laughs> And we're going to do that in two ways. The the first is, I, I think Phil made a good point. We have to contextualize the charter. We had a like a rushed, basic, five-minute history or origin story at the end of our last podcast. And actually, it was interesting. I got some feedback because I sort of had tied it into the October crisis and the concern there about suspension of rights. And some people pushed back and said, actually, there's a bigger origin story here. You're not really capturing with that, that narrative. And so one of the things that I did is I sat down with the dean of my law school at the University of Ottawa in the common law section of the Faculty of Law, Adam Dodek, who is the guru in this area, and asked him about the origin story of the charter. So we're going to bring Adam in to have that conversation. But before we do that, uh, in, in keeping with Phil's point, I think we need to contextualize what the charter is. So the charter is not truly a self-standing instrument that is suspended out there in the ether. It's part of this package that was the repatriation process. So recall that up until the early 1980s, if we wanted to amend our constitutional instruments, most notably the Constitution Act of 1867, or as it then was known, the British North America Act, we'd have to go to the United Kingdom Parliament, the historic imperial parliament, and ask them to do the amendments for us. So we weren't masters in our own constitutional house. The patriation process was in large measure about making us those masters, and along the way, for reasons that Adam will describe, we also incorporated new principles, not least the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. All right. So the package was an enactment in the UK Parliament called the Canada Act, which included an instrument called the Constitution Act of 1982. And that's Constitution Act of 1982 for our purposes, the Canadian Constitution Act of So wait, it's the Canadian Act, yes. and within it, there's the Constitution Act. Well, the, the Canada Act 1982, which is uh, a statute of the British Parliament, uh, which then constitutes and, and proclaims the Constitution Act 1982 for Canada based on uh, a certain enactment procedure of the Queen in her Canadian capacity, which is the famous uh, event on Parliament Hill where Pierre Trudeau and the Queen and Jean Chrétien swearing because his pen didn't work or something to that effect. And so that, all, that, like all that good stuff. So there's a Canadian component. There's also uh, more, as importantly, a British component to this. And we won't get into this, but one of the the fun constitutional what ifs that is still out there is could the when you say fun fun for me uh, could, could the British Parliament one day uh, repeal the Canada Act 1982 and legislate for Canada in order to deal with an intractable conflict uh, at a constitutional level so that's that's another kind of fun one and and would we 
would we accord to that? Well, I think the interesting question is if we ever got into a situation like you, you look at the Fixed Term Parliaments Act in the UK today and how Boris Johnson got around it, you just pass another piece of legislation in order to get around the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Could we ever end up in a situation with, in Canada where we just need to make a major amendment to the Constitution? We can't get around the amending formula, so we somehow fandangle to get the British to do it for us. Oh, Constitutional what-ifs. At that this point, is like the worst choose yeah, your own so, adventure. So if, if we got to that level of geekiness, there'd be a whole bunch of political issues that would probably make it extremely problematic at the political level before we'd even get to that discussion on the law. Why you got to spoil my fun? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Stephanie, what I, th- I thought we should start by doing before we bring in Adam is just let's talk about this Constitution Act of 1982 because, uh, again, it has some very notable features some of which we've alluded to and some of which Adam will talk about. So the first thing is most famously part one of the Constitution Act of 1982 is the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it is part of the Constitution Act of 1982. It's not a self-standing instrument. It is part of that Constitution Act. And so this is the thing, I mean, for people who are just really unfamiliar with this, this is the thing that actually we had a bill of rights, but it was just a normal piece of legislation. It could have been you know, redone at any time. Uh, but, you know, good on Diefenbaker for trying. Uh, and then, so, but this, so this actually embeds human rights into our constitution. Yeah, so the difference between a statutory instrument and the 1960 Bill of Rights, by the way, applied only at the federal level, not uh, to the provinces. The difference between a statute and a constitutionalized instrument like this is the constitution is very difficult to amend. And on top of that, uh, for reasons I'll discuss in a, in a moment, the constitution prevails over any inconsistent, whether executive or legislative action. And so there's a supremacy to the Constitution, to a very difficult to amend Constitution that doesn't exist for regular statutes. Statute could be amended by any subsequent parliament. That's part of the expression of parliamentary supremacy. No no parliament can bind another parliament uh, through regular statute law. The Constitution is different. It sets the ground rules. It's the basic law. And so when you put rights in a constitutional framework, you're elevating them beyond the reach of regular statute law subject to the terms of of that charter itself, which include, and Adam will talk about this, the famous section 33, the notwithstanding clause, and I'll I'll defer that conversation to to Adam's, uh, the chat I had with Adam. And of course, as we've mentioned repeatedly on this podcast, there is in the charter itself, the section one concept. So the rights are not absolute in the charter context. Why? Because with the sort of justification that is acceptable under Section 1, and Section 1 has been sort of articulated, there's a jurisprudence around it, the government can justify limitations on rights if the impulse, if the impetus is significant enough and meets the jurisprudential test. And I'm not going to talk about it. It's called the Oaks test. I was going to say, the language is like, you know, reasonable within a free and democratic society. Right. So the actual language of of the Section 1 is the the rights can be limited where it's reasonable in a free and democratic society. What does that mean in practice? Well, the Supreme Court has created a a test called the Oaks test, which has gone through some variation over, over the years. And it's a test that the government has to meet as an evidentiary matter when it's trying to justify a limitation on a charter right. Okay. All right. So let's talk about then the the content of the Constitution Act of uh, 1982. So we said part one is the charter. Part two is Aboriginal rights, Section 35 specifically. And Section 35 uh, reads, the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada are hereby recognized and affirmed. 
And so that's important because it puts on a constitutional footing treaty rights or rights that had been recognized at common law, say, in relation to Aboriginal title. It gives them a constitutional imprimatur, which changes the political dynamic somewhat in terms of uh, these rights and negotiating with government over land claims issues, for example, or resource management. So, and I think what's key here is that... uh the Aboriginal rights are not in the Charter. They are in a separate constitutional document, but the courts now have... Same document, Constitution Act of 1982, but different part. Different part, right. Um, But the courts have now increasingly recognized those as constitutional rights, requiring now a duty to consult. Yeah, so one of the manifestations of Aboriginal rights is this this honour of the Crown, which obliges a duty to consult. Uh, It's not an area in which I claim much expertise, so I'm I'm not going to try to describe the full scope of that. I mean, the bottom line is there are, are, are cases that the Supreme Court has developed which flesh out that Section 35 concept and what it really means and where it still exists. Where is there still an existing uh, Aboriginal right? Can I just jump in here and say one of the more interesting cases in this regard is a recent one, uh, Mikisu, uh, yeah. where uh, the Supreme Court actually recognized that the honor of the crown and duty to consult belongs with the crown in an executive capacity and ministers in an executive capacity. And it does not apply to the crown in parliament or ministers uh, when they are acting in parliament as members of parliament. So it's actually an interesting case, not only for the separation of powers in Canada, but also how we conceptualize the concept of the state in different capacities of the state in Canada through the prism of, uh, of Indigenous rights. And what's even more interesting, right, is uh, in that particular case, you see how do you reconcile um, the longstanding constitutional doctrine of uh, parliamentary privilege and, and the, the uniqueness of parliament versus the concept of Indigenous rights and how you get around that. And I think the court was actually quite creative in saying that ultimately you can't impede upon Parliament. Uh, You can't allow the judiciary to start getting involved in the drafting of legislation. But what you can do is come at it through either once the bill has been granted royal assent or uh, imposing, as we traditionally have done, the duty on uh, the Crown and Council and ministers uh, in their executive capacity. Yeah, and... It's an interesting dive into the separation of powers because typically we tend to de-emphasize the separation of powers in the way we approach Westminster democracy. This is a Supreme Court case which is preoccupied with them. I have to say when I first read it, I was, so the honor of the crown pertains to the crown in the executive capacity, but of course constitutionally the crown is also part of parliament. And so presumably the crown is free to be dishonorable in their parliamentary capacity. <laughs> well, this is why it's so interesting in Canada to, to kind of dive into this concept because the, the crown ultimately has to be understood as the state versus the executive, which is what a lot of kind of lazy constitutional law does, or at least a lot of lazy jurisprudence does of saying... Also crown. potentially lazy academics. Yes. Well, I mean saying, okay, crown equals government. No, you can't go that way because it's it makes it too complicated. The crown is state, which explains why you'll have the crown acting in a provincial capacity in some cases. You'll have it acting in a federal capacity in certain cases. You'll have it acting in an executive capacity. And also, finally, you'll have it acting in a legislative capacity, and that therefore also applies to its servants. Therefore, uh, when a minister is wearing their ministerial hat, they are doing so in an executive capacity, and that is separate and distinct from their capacity as parliamentarians when they're in a, enacting legislation. And so it really gets us into interesting uh, areas of how you make the distinction between what hat somebody is wearing and, and which crown the crown is wearing when it's acting and yeah. how it's acting. And does it matter in terms of the Section 35 and well, issue? Well, clearly it did in this case, right? Yeah, Which well, that's really it. And so, the, and there's probably some practical reasons for that, but I think it could have, on principle, gone the other way 
and, and been quite as justifiable. Yeah, and it's just also, since we're leading up to uh, the, the last main piece where uh, Indigenous rights marries up with the Charter was the famous uh, Alberta Indians case leading up to uh, patriation, uh, where in the English Court of Appeal, the question was raised, to whom are uh, Aboriginal rights, um, which crown actually owes them, right? And the question before the English Court of Appeal was, does that belong to the crown of the United Kingdom? So did the crown of the United Kingdom still have uh, an honor towards uh, Aboriginal peoples in Canada? And the English Court of Appeal got around by saying, no, no, no. I mean, the crown was divided long ago, and so all this honor of the crown now belongs to the crown in, or the queen in her Canadian capacity alone. And they go so far as to say that it, they are two entirely separate and distinct legal entities. So they're, again, using kind of the bifurcated and divided multiplied crown in order to get out or get around a lot of complicated uh, constitutional concepts that we've struggled with. Yeah. Crown cloning. Yes. So so just on our march, we're almost through this march on the, in the Constitution Act of 1982. The next part that I'll mention is part three, equalization and regional disparities, right? So this is much in the is, news. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> uh, so, so note where it is. It's outside of the charter. There's no conversation about notwithstanding, right? So it is uh, a, a separate component of the Constitution Act of 1982. Not going to dwell on that. Then the two last points I'll make. The final major parts uh, involves the amendment formula. And so this is the manner by which here on after the Constitution may be amended. Up to that point, recall, up to the eight, 1982, we had been dependent on the UK Parliament. So if the UK Parliament's no longer going to do that amendment job, who's going to do it and how are we going to make it work in a federation? So just to be clear... Um the Canada Act in the UK created the Constitution Act of 1982. Think of it as a delivery vehicle. Right. It's like the Amazon of constitutions. <laughs> right. Like, okay. Kind of the box with a big smiley it's like prime. slogan. Right. Okay. <laughs> it's prime. And so, and that, but the Constitution Act 1982 is comprised of Five? five? Well, there's more than five points, parts, but I, I'm but just mentioning the, 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 the most important material ones. And then one last point I'll make, Adam and I will talk about the amendment formula in terms of its specifics, so we'll de defer that conversation. But just one last part I'll, I'll, I'll mention, and specifically Section 52 of the Constitution Act of 1982, it says, the Constitution of Canada is the supreme law of Canada, and any law that is inconsistent with the provisions of the Constitution is to the extent of that inconsistency of no force or effect. And then it goes on and defines what's intended by Constitution of Canada, which was nice. I mean, finally we have a definition, although it's not for reasons Phil and I will probably discuss later on, it's not actually an exclusive definition. There are other aspects of the constitution that are not in fact enumerated. But that section 52 supremacy clause, that's the acknowledgement, which has always been tacit, that the constitution law is supreme over competing, say, statutory law. And that's always been tacit in the sense that right from the inception of Canada, recall that we had courts that were deciding whether something was properly federal or provincial and invalidating laws on that basis. There's always been a constitutional supremacy in our fabric. Now that constitutional supremacy, of course, includes not just division of powers, federalism issues, but also the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, right? And that's very important. And it also opens the door then to courts being in the position to referee where a given law lies in relation to the supremacy. And so we're now talking about empowering courts not just to adjudicate questions of federalism, but also adjudicate questions of individual rights and potentially invalidate both federal and provincial laws, which is a, a constraint on that traditional concept of parliamentary supremacy. The parliament can do whatever it wants. Okay, so we, should we bring in Adam? Sounds good. Adam, uh, we're in the course of this conversation about the origin story of the constitutional fabric of Canada. And in that conversation, we've got to basically the 1980s 
And here, of course, the pivotal event is the Constitution Act of 1982, most famous for the Charter of Rights. But there's a long sort of throat-clearing exercise that leads up to the the patriation of the Canadian Constitution, some of which we've dealt with in our conversation. But maybe maybe you could just give us your origin story for the Constitution Act of 1982. So my origin story would go back to 1926 and the Balfour Report, uh, where the United Kingdom said that they would no longer legislate uh, for the colonies, for uh, for the dominions, for South Africa, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. That, uh, as I believe you've talked about, led to the Statute of Westminster. So that really opened the door for Canada to patriate its own constitution, uh, to take back the Constitution Act, or what was known as the, the British North America Act, 1867, and a whole host of subsequent statutes passed by Westminster relating to Canada and to make that uh, the Canadian Constitution. From between 1931 and 1982, there were 13 unsuccessful attempts to patriate the Canadian Constitution. And the sticking point always seemed to be, what would the amending formula be? And so there were different versions, different attempts in those in those 13 different efforts. And then you come to to the 14th attempt. So in, so just just the amendment formula. So so am I right that up to this point, if amendments were to be made, say to the British North America Act, that was done by the Imperial Parliament, Westminster Parliament in the UK. And if you're patriating the Constitution and making it a Canada-only affair, then you have to have a different formula for constitutional changes going forward. Is that what you're talking about? That's correct. So until 1982, every time uh, Canada wanted to make a change to one of the acts that made up the Canadian Constitution, the British North America Act, or uh, to have another province join or a territory, the Parliament of Canada needed to petition the Parliament of the United Kingdom to amend an act or to pass an act for Canada. And that's the way that we amended our constitution until 1982. So the sticking point going forward in these efforts between the 1930s through the 1980s was really what in-house amendment system might we have after patriation? Absolutely. Would one province or all the provinces have a veto? How much support would you need from the provinces uh, in order to support the uh, a federal initiative? When could the federal government initiate an amendment on its own? All those sort of sticky issues. Mm. And ironically, the the issue is to whether the federal government could act unilaterally in petitioning the imperial parliament, the Westminster, became a pointed legal d- dispute in, in a reference case, right? The patriation reference. Yes, that's correct. So that became uh, the core of the patriation reference, which was brought by three different provinces in, uh, in 1981, that reference really there has nothing to do with the charter or indigenous rights uh, that we talk about and we celebrate today. But that was the key element, the key struggle on the a parliamentary level, on a political level, and on a judicial level in 1980-81. So the Supreme Court concluded that the Trudeau government couldn't uh, unilaterally, as a matter of constitutional convention, 
seek the patriation package, but needed substantial consent, I believe, from the provinces? Yes, that's that's correct. And, so, and, and that was later confirmed that a single province did not have a veto. So there was a further Quebec reference, Quebec-specific reference. And I believe that the so-called Quebec veto reference specified that substantial consent did not mean universal consent. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So the, the Supreme Court ruling in the fall of 1981 paved the way for a political compromise at a first minister's conference in November 1981, which at the time was known as the last chance attempt. So how did the charter then become a feature in this conversation if the preoccupation historically had been what amendment formula are you going to employ? Where does the charter come from? The origins of the charter, I mean, they can date back to the Diefenbaker Bill of Rights in 1960 uh, dates back earlier to the post-World War II movement uh, for human rights, the UN Declaration of Human Rights, the, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. But it's really thrust on the scene, on the Canadian political scene, by Pierre Trudeau in 1967 as Minister of Justice. So in the early 60s, there was a bit of a detente between Quebec and the rest of Canada and the federal government about constitutional reform. And there was a, a quiet agreement between Jean Lesage, the, the liberal premier of Quebec, and Lester B. Pearson, the liberal premier of Canada, not to talk about constitutional reform. And that was shattered in 1966 when the people of Quebec elected a Union Nationale uh, government of Daniel Johnson Sr., and he published a, a paper called Egalité ou Independence, Equality or Independence. And that forced the federal government to respond. And Pearson made his justice minister, Pierre Trudeau, the, the key person in that response. And there was a first minister's conference in 1967, around the time of the, the 100th anniversary of Confederation. And Trudeau produced a document called uh, a, a Bill of Rights for Canada. And that really was the genesis of the, what became the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms in 1982. And so that that concept of the Charter is different from the 1960 Bill of Rights that you mentioned, the Diefenmaker government's Bill of Rights. That was just a regular statute that purported to trump any inconsistent statute so long as those other statutes didn't further trump the Bill of Rights. But when we talk about the Charter, it's now codified in our basic law, constitutional law, and then would be any changes to it would be subject to the amendment formula, which was the beginning of our conversation, the, the one that ultimately becomes an endorsed and codified in the Constitution Act of 1982. That's correct. And there's one other key element about the 1960 Canadian Bill of Rights is that it was a federal statute and it only applied to the federal mm. uh, federal parliament and the federal government. It had no application whatsoever to any of the provinces, to any provincial law. And that's very different from the idea of a constitutionally entrenched Bill of Rights, which ultimately is what the Charter became, which applies to all levels of government, all laws, all legal actions by, uh, by the executive, by the legislature, uh, by everyone. So that must have 
some of the provinces must have, have seen their ox being gored by that. So in this podcast series, we've talked about this concept of parliamentary supremacy, the notion that the legislative branch is the supreme organ of government and subject to the traditional division of powers in between federal and provincial, it's always had expansive jurisdiction. If you, if you start codifying constitutionalized rights that uh, constitute a no-go zone effectively for legislative action at both the federal and provincial level, presumably you're reducing the scope of action of those provincial and federal governments and legislatures. Was that politically contentious? It was very politically contentious. Very few provinces supported the idea of a constitutionally entrenched Bill of Rights from the period of 1967 until ultimately 1982. And they opposed it for a number of reasons. They opposed it because from a pure political perspective or relationship between the federal and provincial government, as you've said, it would restrict the power of provincial legislatures to legislate in other areas. There were other provinces and different premiers over time that that opposed it on quite a, a principled or an ideological basis, that they saw parliament or their provincial legislature as the font of rights. And the federal government didn't necessarily have a great record in terms of the protection of civil liberties. So there were NDP and progressive premiers at different points that opposed a constitutional bill of rights because they worried that it would actually could be regressive Mm -hmm. and could restrict the the rights of minorities or of labor rights and, and labor unions. So there was, when you get to 1980 and 81 and Trudeau has a formal package of constitutional reforms with a proposed amending formula, with a proposed Charter of Rights and Freedoms, there are only two provinces that support that initiative, Ontario and New Brunswick. Every other province, ranging from the NDP in Manitoba to the Progressive Conservatives in Alberta to the Parti Québécois in Quebec, oppose Trudeau's package of constitutional reforms. So how did it happen? I, I think the, the Supreme Court decision, the reference that you've, that you've talked about, really paved the way for a political compromise because the Supreme Court said that as a matter of law, the federal government could proceed unilaterally, but as a matter of constitutional convention, they needed substantial agreement. So that gave the federal government and Trudeau the threat or the hammer of proceeding unilaterally. And Trudeau made that threat quite openly and thought that Margaret Thatcher, as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, should just pass his package of constitutional reforms and the provinces be damned. So the provinces knew that uh, that Trudeau had that trump card and that he was probably willing to play that trump card. And that forced this last round of negotiations in November 1981 that ultimately led to a political agreement on a package of constitutional reforms with an amending formula, with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, with Section 35 on Indigenous rights, and notably, really for the first time, uh, and the notwithstanding clause. Right. So that's Section 33, and that's been in the news quite a bit uh, in the last year or so here in Ontario, where there was a, the prospect that the Ford government might uh, deploy the notwithstanding clause in the wake of the lower court ruling in, involving the redistricting of, of Toronto municipal seats. Uh, the question, I guess, is, well, what does Section 33 do and what doesn't it do? And it sounds like from your discussion that this was the toll that the provinces extracted from the Trudeau government 
as part of this compromise. Is that is that right? Absolutely. I I'm convinced that we would not have had patriation or a charter of rights and freedoms uh, without the notwithstanding clause. That was the price that the premiers extracted from Trudeau in November 1981 in exchange for their agreement. And what Section 33 of the Constitution Act 1982 says is either federal parliament or any provincial legislature can pass a law that infringes certain sections of the charter and only the charter and only certain sections and only certain sections they're important sections they're section 2 about fundamental freedoms section 7 to 14 about legal rights and section 15 about equality uh, so they can pass an, a law notwithstanding that it may infringe those sections so it's important to know what it does apply to and what it doesn't apply to Notably, it does not apply to democratic rights, to the right to vote. Or mobility rights. Or mobility rights, the right to, to, to leave and return to Canada, the right to, uh, to move from province to province. And it does not apply to anything outside the Charter. So that would include Section 35, Indigenous rights, Aboriginal rights. Those are not within the fabric of the Charter per se. They're outside the Charter. Section 33 would not apply to those. And so the various uh, commentary you see out there in relation, say, to pipeline politics, saying Section 33 is always there, is a hammer in the background in the event that Indigenous rights are are, are viewed as too cramping on uh, economic development. That's a misleading statement. That's correct. And and from time to time you see people say, oh, the, this government should use the notwithstanding clause about this thing or that thing. Uh, there's only limited circumstances when a government can invoke the notwithstanding clause. And it certainly d- does not apply to anything relating to the division of powers. And it requires legislation. It's not just the executive branch that can pull the trigger. It requires legislation and it can only... Uh, it only lasts for five years. Right. And the five-year window is tied to the the traditional duration of a parliament, the idea being that uh, a new parliament would have to reconsider the matter over its natural cycle would expire and that a new parliament would come into place and there would have to be reconsideration at sunsets, in other words. Yes, yes, that was the idea. Although, to be clear, there wasn't a lot of consideration about the notwithstanding clause in when it was brought up in November 1981, as opposed to there being so much discussion about the amending formula, about Indigenous rights, and about the contents of the Charter, because they had been part of conferences and parliamentary committees and public debates for years and years and years. Mm. Now, one of the debates that came up about Section 33 about a year ago in relation to the the Ford government's perspective use uh, through a, a bill in the in the provincial legislature, there was a debate as to whether Section 33 was really intended for Alaska GASP final straw option in the wake of a recalcitrant court decision that was no longer appealable, or whether it was something that could be used as a matter of course. And there was uh, this was one of these fervent Twitter legal universe debates, and people had different views, including people who had been there at, at the conception of, of these concepts. Is there a clear legislative history or statutory history or preceding history that allows us to make that determination as to which of those two prospects was in, intended? There really isn't because, again, there were there were four and a half months of committee debates and proceedings on uh, the proposed constitutional reforms from 1980 to 81. The notwithstanding clause was not part of that. Uh, there were parliamentary debates when, when the draft resolution was introduced uh, and debated in the House of Commons and the Senate. 
the notwithstanding clause was not part of that. So it was inserted at the very end. There was very little record about it. There's competing visions. Jean Chrétien, who was the Minister of Justice, when he introduced this in the House of Commons, uh, explaining this deal that had been reached in November 1981, uh, explained to the House of Commons, and this is in Hansard, he said, don't worry about this. This would only be used for um, non-controversial items uh, like technical mistakes. And I don't think that was con- consistent with what people thought at the time to the extent that the, the, the premiers wanted to be able to have the last word against the courts uh, for, for various reasons. Uh, they had different, different premiers had different reasons, but ultimately what they were seeking was they wanted a trump card to, to play against a court decision uh, that they disagreed with. It's never been used at the federal level, am I right? That's correct. It's never been used at the federal level. Where has it been used provincially? Well, it it started off being used by Quebec. Quebec used it somewhat rather symbolically uh, because they were the only province that did not agree to the Trudeau package of constitutional reforms in 1980-81. Of course, the the Supreme Court of Canada said all the, that the all that was needed was substantial agreement, and in a subsequent case, the Quebec veto reference, they said Quebec doesn't have a veto, no province has a veto. So Quebec inserted for a number of years, the Quebec legislature, the Assemblée Nationale, inserted the notwithstanding clause in every piece of legislation. And to be clear, that doesn't mean that those pieces of legislation infringe the charter. In fact, uh, they weren't fa- found to infringe the charter. But the Quebec government famously invoked it in 1989 when the Supreme Court of Canada did find that there was a, a piece of Bill 101, the famous um, Quebec language laws, that did infringe freedom of expression, Section 2 of the charter. And that was around the time of the Meech Lake Accord, and that created a strong political backlash against the use of the notwithstanding clause. Uh, throughout the rest of Canada. But it was invoked from time to time in other provinces. Uh, in Saskatchewan, it was invoked. Uh, but for for about 20 years, since the late 1990s, um, until recently, no province had formally used the notwithstanding clause. And the most famous manifestation of its use now, I suppose, is Bill 21, involving uh, religious symbols in, in Quebec. Yes, yes. So Adam, just, we have just a few minutes. Maybe the two other features of the constitutional package from 1982 that you've alluded to, and just this would be like the 500-foot overview, what does the amendment formula do, do and then what is the, the guarantee of Indigenous rights that's found now in our constitutional fabric? So we talk about the amendment formula, but there's actually five different amendment formulas. So the amendment formula that was agreed upon set out five different ways to amend the, con- the Constitution. Uh, it set out the first circumstances in which the federal parliament could act unilaterally, relating to only matters uh, relating to parliament or some things relating to the Senate. It set out matters where uh, the province, uh, a, pr- a single province could act unilaterally, relating to its own Constitution. Uh, notably, we there's only one or two provinces that actually have an act that's called their constitution, but but certainly any province could enact its own constitution under its own jurisdiction. The third amending formula is matters that uh, relate to 
some but not all of province of the provinces. Uh, things like uh, if you wanted to change the the border between BC and Alberta, that would require BC and Alberta plus the the federal government. The fourth is uh, unanimity, where you need the federal parliament plus all of the provinces, and, and, and that's it, for Philip Lagasse will be excited about that one because that includes the office of the queen. That includes the the <gasps> office of the queen. Shout out to you, Phil. And <laughs> what that includes, though, the office of the queen is, is something that Phil is going to want to talk about. <laughs> absolutely, the office of the queen, office of the governor general. What does that uh, does that in- include? And then the, the last amending formula is the one that is most well-known, which is known as the 7 and 50 or the, the general amending formula. And that's the default amending formula. That's the one that applies to the most circumstances. And that's the one that we, that we generally, generally applies unless one of the other ones applies. And that requires the, the support of the Parliament of Canada, so the House of Commons and the Senate, and the legislatures of seven of the ten provinces that have at least 50% of the population. And that's hard to get. That is hard to get. That is hard to get. So what about Indigenous rights? So Indigenous rights were included in Section 35. Of Again, that's outside of the, the charter. And Indigenous rights were the subject of great, great discussion in the 1980-81 period. In the pre- I talked about 13 previous rounds of failed attempts to patriate the Constitution, and almost none of those rounds were Indigenous groups, uh, participants, or, or even consulted. 1980-81, in those discussions, that was really the first time that Indigenous groups, Indigenous peoples, Indigenous leaders were participants in uh, constitutional reform in this country. And they succeeded in thrusting the issue of Indigenous rights onto the national political agenda. So there was a lot of discussion about uh, Indigenous rights, the protection of Indigenous rights, different, uh, different types of Indigenous rights, treaty rights, Aboriginal title, and there was an there was agreement but concern in uh, in recognizing indigenous rights. There was an agreement ultimately to to codify and to protect and entrench indigenous rights in Section thirty five. There was uncertainty or concern because very few people, certainly within any governments at the federal or provincial level had much of an idea what that entailed. And what we've seen since 1982 is a process underway for now almost 40 years of courts and indigenous groups and political actors trying to determine what is the what are the contents of indigenous rights under Section 35. Wonderful. So thanks very much for your time, Adam. It's been very helpful. It's uh, good uh, to speak to the expert in this area, and uh, I would note, this is a shout-out, that you have the Charter Debates, which is a consolidation uh, that you edited of the legislative history of the Charter, which surprisingly was hard to find before you put together this one-stop-all book. So uh, I would recommend it, the Charter Debates. It's edited by Adam Dodick, and you can find it, I would assume, on Amazon. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Craig. 
So, you know, in my role here as non-expert slash crazy person, I listened to that. And it's it was a fascinating discussion, actually. Uh, I learned quite a bit from it. I think the, my first takeaway was like 13 times. We tried this 13 times. We never hear about the 13 times. But the other thing that struck me is, again, uh, we hear so much right now about provinces and their grievances and stuff. And it's funny, like, going back to that history is like, oh, Everything old is new again, you know, that, that how much the provinces were concerned about Ottawa just imposing a whole bunch of human rights obligations on them. I think I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, and I guess finally, the impression I have, and, and I think maybe, Phil, this is kind of where we drag you back in eagerly, is this seemed like a bit of a rush job to me. I guess like the, in a way that like I hadn't really appreciated before. I, I was, I guess the way it had been taught, and I'm thinking back here to grade 10, and I hope you know, my grade 10 history teacher, Mr. Lack, isn't listening right <laughs> You remember now. your grade 10 history uh, teacher. Yeah, he was a great teacher. I love him. <laughs> he was great. He was a great guy. The way, the way it was taught in school was, you know, like, oh, this is kind of almost Whiggish right. understanding, right? It was like, inevitable. In the sense, it was inevitable. This was the logical conclusion. Definitely realized, okay, we failed 13 times. We, we were fighting about whether or not we could even, you know, do this. Uh, the idea of what um, consultation meant in the provincial context, all these kinds of things. And also, you know, like the, 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 you know, in the discussion, the idea that Trudeau could potentially strong arm the provinces and say, well, look, I, I consulted with you guys by we're going to do a constitution now. And that's why so many of the provinces actually eventually buy into this. But was the end result of this a rush job? And, and what is the leftovers as a result? Right. I, I, I agree with you. And I think it's, you know, maybe sometimes the Constitution Act 1982 is almost upheld as sacrosanct by certain people and the the idea that somehow it, it failed to do certain things is, is seen as rather gauche to say that. Uh, but even drawing on uh, what Adam kind of mentioned, the fact of the matter is Trudeau was primarily concerned with his charter, the provinces were primarily concerned with the amending formula, and what they didn't really deal with is, you know, what we might call the wash-up exercise of trying to ensure that a number of things that you might take for granted are actually explicit. And this gets back to everything we've been talking about right from the beginning of this podcast. You'll recall we discussed doctrine of reception, paramount force, colonial validity, and all this. This is I all. I think these would all be good band names. Yeah, they would actually. <laughs> royal prerogative would yeah, be. Yeah, royal prerogative. <laughs> would be but the, I mean, the fact is that if you want to understand the legal and constitutional history of Canada, you oftentimes have to make reference to uh, old British statutes or English statutes in certain cases. And the problem in the uh, in the Canadian constitutional patriation situation is that that wasn't really dealt with. So uh, what we have is um, a schedule to the Constitution Act 1982, which is actually very anemic. It kind of lists basically the former British North America Acts and it lists like the Statute of Westminster. But if you contrast that with uh, the Imperial Acts Application Act 1986 of Australia, let's look at some of the things just very quickly that the Australians actually managed to explicitly bring in to their constitution, which we did not. And again, uh, listeners of the podcast will recall that we've discussed a lot of this. Magna Carta is in there in the Australian case. The Bill of Rights, 1689, is in there. The Petition of Right is in there. The Act of Settlement is in there. The Royal Marriages Act. Uh, the Demise of the Crown Act. I mean, basically, a lot of stuff that is considered kind of essential to becoming a fully independent state in a Canadian, in a, an Australian context is, is explicitly brought in uh, into their constitution so that they don't they know exactly what the law is. 
We don't do that. Instead, if you look at some of the committee work around uh, the Constitution Act 1982, you'll have exchanges between then Justice Minister Jean Chrétien and uh, Committee Chair Serge Royal kind of saying, is the schedule kind of accommodating of all of this? And Chrétien kind of saying, yeah, it kind of is, you know, it's fine, don't worry about it. But in the subsequent years, uh, since uh, the Constitution was patriated, we've had to rely on the courts to kind of fill the holes that, uh, that weren't explicit. So maybe, Craig, do you want to discuss a little bit how they've done that with principles and architecture, and then I'll bring in a, a, a contemporary case. Yeah, sure. So if, if I were to come up with a typology of constitutional, and I'll use the term norms, norms kind of overarching ideas. Uh, and so I would say that there are firm constitutional rules that are written. And so that would be the division of powers in section 91, 92, and a few others in the Constitution Act of 1867. They're on paper. You can read them, require a lot of interpretation. They're antiquated. Written rules in the Chart of Rights, written rules in section 35. So there are these written rules, which most people think of when they think about Constitution. It's a text, right? On top of that, there are still those very elemental constitutional conventions. And the conventions are, think of them as the glue that tell you how things really operate. So the governor general on paper in that written text may have the power, for example, to dissolve parliament or to summon parliament. In practice, the governor general is acting at the behest of the prime minister. Where's that written? Nowhere. It's a constitutional convention, right? So we talked about the King Bing issue and, and last time and the constitutional conventions about minority governments, etc. Those are unwritten practices, political practices that have sort of risen to the level, and there's a test, and, and Phil talks about the test quite often, I won't rehearse it, but there's, it's risen to the level of being considered mandatory right, and, and therefore constitutionalized. So constitutional conventions. Then there are unwritten rules, and by unwritten, I mean you might find some expression of them in the written text, but the Supreme Court has also said that they stem from some of the past practices in the United Kingdom. So take, for example, the concept of judicial independence. Judicial independence, the court has found the concept of judicial independence to spring from both written and unwritten sources. And so Section 96, which creates a federal judiciary, provincially created but federally appointed, superior courts, uh, and Section 11 of the Charter, which uh, guarantees that in relation to criminal offenses, you will be tried in front of an impartial uh, and independent uh, judge, that's a written basis for judicial independence. But the court has also said that the concept of judicial independence is imported through that preamble in the Constitution Act of 1867, a constitution in principle similar to the United Kingdom, and comes from the Act of Settlement of 1701, right? So it's got all these kind of multivarious sources, and it's a rule because it's binding to the degree that the court will strike down legislation that impedes judicial independence. So and, and just to make it clear, right, I mean, the way the, the, the way the court is actually clever on this is that they're not saying that the Act of Settlement is part of Canadian law. What they say is aspects of the Act of Settlement are constitutional principles in Canada or a principle. So it, it's this kind of alchemy of kind of having it both ways, uh, saying like on the one hand, the act of settlement clearly has some kind of influence over the Canadian constitution and Canadian law, but it's actually not part of the Canadian constitution, which gets very curious because you'll have provinces like Ontario explicitly saying in their official documentation in some cases that the act of settlement is part of their law. Right. And you'll have previous jurisprudence kind of making the case that it is part of Canadian law. So it's there's a lot of kind of confusion around what's in, what's out. Yeah, and, and that would be true of the Bill of Rights of 1689 too. Some courts say the Bill of Rights 
rights in its full glory is part of Canadian constitutional law because of the preamble to the Constitution Act of 1867. This is often in the context of uh, questions around uh, parliamentary privilege. Some courts have said that the, the gravamen of the bill, it's, it's, the, it's the substance, not the actual formal bill that's part of Canadian law. Yeah, like, and this will touch on issues that we deal with later, right? Like, for instance, this one that we can discuss at a later date. Uh, does the Bill of Rights provision that you require parliamentary approval to have a standing army uh, hold in Canada? I would argue it does because when you look at legislation providing for militia or providing for the armed forces in Canada, it's clearly a parliamentary expression of, of the fact that those forces exist. On the other hand, you could take the other position that uh, as kind of a crown entity uh, and subject to kind of crown uh, control as a former colony, that the crown wouldn't have required uh, parliamentary uh, permission to have a, a uh, an armed force in, in Canada. And when you look at the National Defense Act, it's kind of, it's a little bit more cagey because it says these are simply the armed forces of Her Majesty. They don't say that it's creating it, they just acknowledge its existence. I'm you got to ask the questions. Yeah. Well, so, but we still have one more, right? So constitutional written rules, constitutional conventions, and uh, unwritten rules. And then the final is this thing the Supreme Court concocted in the 1998 Quebec secession reference when it was asked, in what circumstance would a referendum victory for a sovereignist party or side in Quebec generate an obligation constitutionally to do something about it? And so, because there's no rule, written rule on secession of a province. And so they came up with principles, unwritten principles. And so they talked about... Did they just make that up? Yeah, basically. Okay. So, but, but I mean, the logic of it is, look, these are things that are tacit in the very fabric of our constitutional order. And so if I name them, they will sound familiar. Principles of federalism. Well, you can extract a principle of federalism from the fact that the whole structure of the Constitution Act of 1867 is predicated on a federal and provincial level, right? So it's not much of a stretch. Principles of democracy, which is interesting, right? So uh, the idea of democracy, is that a principle of our constitutional fabric? Well, certainly there's recognition in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms that there's a right to vote in Section 3 of the Charter. Mm, 1867 Act... I would say it's not a tremendously democratic institution or, or instrument. At that time, the rights to vote were quite constrained. They varied from province to province. But nevertheless, the court has said democracy is sort of an animating principle of our constitutional fabric. Constitutionalism and the rule of law, right? Rule of law was, the, was the, one of the first principles we talked about in this series, right? The idea that the law is supreme. All this other stuff doesn't matter if you don't agree that the law matters, right? So if the law doesn't matter, you'll do whatever you want, right? And we could probably point to places where that seems to be happening. So the idea of constitutionalism, abiding by the constitution, abiding more generally by the rule of law, is an obvious animating principle. And then the final one they talk about is respect for minorities. And minority rights do run through not just the 1867 Act in terms of uh, schooling systems, but, but also the Canadian Charter. And so these principles together, they, they use these principles together to sort of come up with a formula about what would happen in the event that there was uh, a referendum on the question of secession. Uh, and they set out ground rules. And you, you said, did they make it up? Yeah. I mean, they came up with a system where I there mean, is no system. It's grounded in some stuff. Yeah, it's grounded in stuff. Yeah. It's a rational approach, but it's not anticipated anywhere in the written constitutional framework. It, it, and it's not something the, the political branches of government turn to. In fact, the political branches of government, specifically the executive, they posed this question. The Cretchen government posed this question of the court because it was not something any political entity really wanted to weigh in on. They wanted the imprimatur of the court to decide what would the ground rules be in the event that there was this crisis in which a province decided to secede. And I just want to add that uh, this has been material in Brexit as well. So ultimately, the Miller II case, which rested on whether or not uh, Johnson's prorogation 
was constitutional or not. What the UK, this is very recent yeah, history. Yeah, exactly. The UK Supreme Court, you can call it policy transfer or contagion effect or whatever it happens to be. Uh, I would argue that they kind of looked at the Canadian conception here of principles and they borrowed that in order to tr- transform effectively executive uh, accountability to parliament in, from a convention into a constitutional principle, thereby making it judicially enforceable. So this this notion of principles either nested in, in, higher, princip- in higher constitutional law or as part of the common law, whatever it happens to be, uh, seems to now be uh, available to courts to deal with even uh, abuses or what they seem to be abuses of executive executive prerogative that normally would be dealt with by convention, but have to be dealt with through judicial remedy. I would actually go one step further, and I would say that in Miller, they converted it into an unwritten rule, because in the Supreme Court context, when they talked about principles in the Quebec succession reference, they also said, and it's for the political actors to enforce these, not for the courts. Right. And so, uh, albeit there's one instance since then where the Supreme Court pointed to the rule of law as a principle and in a context where then enforced. But but the bottom line is that we've got different sorts of constitutional norms, some of which are enforceable in court, rules, both written and unwritten, and some of which are, at least in theory and in practice often and most often, unenforceable in court, and that would be conventions and unwritten principles. So oh, yeah. so we're running out of time here, Stephanie. I think there's one other issue that uh, Phil wanted to raise, and we kept alluding in the last podcast to what happened in 2013, and we didn't actually tell our listeners what happened in 2013, and so with bated breath, Phil, there's this last irritant that, in terms of what we didn't fix in 82 that you wanted to talk about. All right, so it brings together a number of issues. First, did 1982 make us fully independent or not? And I think a lot of people would have argued that it did, and it also brings in this question of principles. So, as you'll recall, in 1936, uh, the Canadian, the King government requested and consented that the British Parliament legislate for Canada the Abdication Act of Edward VIII in order to ensure that it had effect in Canadian law. Um, fast forward to 1978, where the Trudeau government, when it's proposing its own uh, new constitution, includes a, uh, a section in there where it says that the Queen of Canada will have heirs and successors according to law. And as I mentioned last time, presumably that's Canadian law because the whole idea was that we were becoming fully independent from the UK. But this is where in these all these negotiations, some things, as I said, were kind of left unaddressed. And one of those things that was left unaddressed is the succession to the throne in Canada. Now, if you look at kind of authorities early on, uh, let's take Peter Hogg uh, prior to 2013. Hogg would have argued that succession to the throne. Who, who is Peter Hogg? So he's kind of the... the, the constitutional law guru. Yeah, he's kind of the in leading... Canada? Yeah, the leading yep. authority in, in okay. Canada. Sorry, Peter, in case you're listening. Yeah. And so he would have made the case that uh, if you were to change the rules of succession uh, in Canada, you would have had to do a Section 41 uh, unanimous amendment in Canada. And, I th- and that was the position of the Monarchist League and others as well. But then we ran into a problem in 2013 where, uh, or in 2011, the British government wanted to liberalize the rules of succession. So they wanted to end male primogeniture and they wanted to re- loosen some of the restrictions on Catholic marriages. Yeah, and just to interject here, right? So this goes back to the act of settlement, really, and the idea idea was that you were going to restrict the succession to those who were in communion, essentially, with the Church of England, and primogeniture gives primacy to male heirs. So it's actually a discriminatory provision, both on religion and gender grounds. That was actually challenged in Canada, the, the rules of succession to the British crown, aka the Canadian crown, that were discriminatory, was challenged on charter grounds in Canada as a violation against, in this case, Catholics. Uh, And the court, in a decision, maybe, Phil, you should describe the decision, but the court basically said, when it comes to sort of contesting using one part of the Constitution, in this case, the charter, to sort of beat down another part 
of the Constitution, which was viewed as the uh, idea that we're in lockstep with the rest of the Commonwealth in terms of our rules of succession. You can't do that, right? You can't give primacy to one part of the Constitution over the other part of the Constitution. So you got to live with this discriminatory, baked-in, ancient way of succession. That was the conclusion about 15 years ago or so. Right. And that, what was interesting about that case, the O'Donohue case, is that the judge could have just stopped there, right? Could have simply said, you know, you can't use the charter to undermine the crown and the constitution. But the judge went further and uh, endorsed something, that, uh, what, what he ended up calling a principle of symmetry, such that the, the rules of succession that we actually have, we don't have any of our own laws. Because if they were actual Canadian laws, then they might be subject to charter challenge. Uh, and if they are, um, as we discovered, part of the Constitution, then to change them, you would actually have to engage the amending formula. So how do you get around that? You get around that by endorsing a principle of symmetry, so another one of these constitutional principles. And again, drawing on the preamble that we are similar in principle to the United Kingdom and that we're under the, the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And the Statue of Westminster Act. Yeah. You say that effectively, no, we don't have our own laws of succession, uh, contrary to what we held up to 1978. What we have is instead uh, simply this very simple rule, as Mark Walters uh, from Queens describes it as, very simple rule that whoever is queen in, or king in the United Kingdom is ex officio automatically the king or queen of Canada. Uh, so, And that's a very easy way to kind of get around uh, the amending formula. And ultimately, not only is the Quebec Superior Court endorsed it, so is the Quebec Court of Appeal. And uh, as I mentioned, authorities who in the past would have linked it to Section 41 have kind of did a, a quick turnaround and endorsed the federal government's position in 2013. Uh, that ultimately that's that's what it says. So it's kind of a, we're in a curious position now where we would have argued in 1982 that we're fully independent from the United Kingdom, except now we kind of take it as uh, as doctrine that no, when it comes to the identity of our head of state, uh, the UK decides that and we simply give the thumbs up uh, and the provinces aren't involved. Now, does it matter? Well, 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 it doesn't to, really matter. To be matter. fair, thumbs up. I mean, there was a consultation in Perth, right, about changing these UK rules. Yeah, but ultimately it comes down to the federal parliament can just give its assent uh, and the provinces can't really... Yeah. Uh, so so from an amendment formula issue, yeah. it's an important one. But within the Commonwealth itself, this wasn't unilateralism by the UK. No, no. I mean, yeah. but it's, and getting back to this idea of a convention, we're the only ones in the Commonwealth who still think it's a convention because uh, Australia amended their own law, uh, New Zealand amended their own law. They didn't assent to anything. So the idea that the preamble to the Statute of Westminster still enables some kind of convention is no longer really the case. We're the only ones who really believe that. Um, anyway, all this to say, it's a very elegant solution to get around a, a Canadian constitutional problem that we didn't fully address in 1982. But it does put us in a slightly curious position of effectively arguing what a lot of Republicans have argued for many, many years, that really... It's the British monarchy. This whole idea of a Canadian crown is is just Potomkin, right? It's a Potomkin monarchy. It really is the British monarchy acting in a Canadian capacity. And effectively, this has endorsed it. And it's, it kind of puts the, the monarchists out there in, a, in, a, in an odd position to some extent because to, for many years they argued, at least some of them argued, that it was a truly Canadian monarchy and a great national institution. And now, frankly, uh, I used to argue this many times. People would say the, the British monarchy and I'd say, no, no, it's the Queen of Canada. Well, now – you could probably say with some certainty, yeah, it is the British monarchy. Well, I'm okay with the cardboard cutout queen, actually. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. So we really do – what I would now describe it as is a Canadian crown with a British monarch. Um, and so the, the, the institution is Canadian and we've made that clear. So what happens if the UK – uh, no longer decides to have a monarchy. What are we going to do, right? Uh, we'll have to come up with some other elegant solution to get I'll us out it. of that problem. <laughs> It'll be me. So All Canada, right. independent, 
Maybe. And and Question Stephanie mark? will be on the money. Yay! All right, so we have more than exceeded our usual time limit here. And so why don't we wrap up there? And when we come back, we're going to make a dramatic segue into the substance, really, of this podcast, Intrepid Podcast, which is focused on national security, law, and policy. And we're going to start talking about how this all plays out, especially the royal prerogative issues in the national security and also foreign relations space. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. 